Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me to the book of Exodus. And we're going to be in chapter 10, looking at verses throughout the chapter. But we'll begin in a moment in verse 1. Exodus chapter 10, and starting in verse 1. I think most of you know that a few weeks ago, we had a blood drive at our church. I was in the seat getting ready to donate blood when the nurse in charge made a rather interesting statement. He said, yeah, I have appendicitis. Yep, I'll definitely have to uh, go to the hospital and have my appendix removed tonight. And he just kept going about his work as if it were no big deal. I said, excuse me, sir, I have questions. <laughs> I said, how do you know that right now you have appendicitis? He said, I have diagnosed this so many times to so many other people. I know all the symptoms and I have all the symptoms. But don't worry, we'll keep doing this as long as I can tolerate the pain, and then we'll close shop and I'll go to the hospital. In other words, preacher, you ain't getting out of giving blood. That's what he was really saying. About an hour later, he decided he had had enough. We had to close it down early. He went to the hospital. They did the test, and sure enough, his appendix was about to rupture. He went straight into surgery. Now, this tells us two things. It tells us, number one, nurses really are heroes. And all God's people said, amen. amen. It tells us, number two, that when our bodies have to get our attention, they have a way of doing so. It's called pain. Pain means that there is something that is wrong in us that needs to be fixed. Now, that is true physically speaking, but I want you to know that is true spiritually speaking as well. This morning, this is our fifth and final message on this theme of when God is getting your attention. We've seen so far that there are many different things that God might use in order to get our attention, but when we are not paying attention to God and He has to get our attention, it almost always involves pain. Some trial, some hardship, something that makes us uncomfortable, that surprises us or frightens us. When God is getting our attention, it normally hurts. God hurts us in order to heal us. Well, this is especially clear when we read the book of Exodus we see that God used these plagues not only to deliver Israel from Egypt, but also to get the attention of Pharaoh and Egypt and even of the Israelites. So far, we've studied the first seven plagues. This morning, we are going to look at the next two. We have noticed that as you go along, they keep getting worse. This is why, by the way, it's so important when God is getting our attention that we do listen, that we do respond, because when God is getting your attention and you ignore Him, your life never gets better. It only gets worse. And so this morning, we're going to see a couple of more things that God is normally doing in our lives when He is getting our attention. First of all, when God is getting your attention, 
It's normally because God is challenging our pride. It's because He's challenging our pride. When we come to this eighth plague, there's really one fundamental question. Will Pharaoh finally humble himself before God? We already know the answer, but look with me in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Notice, the longer Pharaoh resists God, the more hardened his heart becomes. God says, I'm doing it this way so that he will see these plagues and so that everyone will know that I am the Lord. The purpose of the plagues was that everyone would know just how great God is. And by everyone, that meant not only Israel, that not only meant their children, but even their children's children. God actually had in mind those future generations that had not yet been born. Which makes me wonder if sometimes in our own lives, God is at work and God is doing things and we scratch our heads, wonder what's going on, and maybe sometimes when God is at work in our lives, it's not even about us, it's about our children's children, it's about those future generations that haven't yet been born. But God did it this way, the Bible says, so that the nations would know how great He is. He wanted them to know that He's powerful, so He sent the plagues. He wanted them to know that He is their sustainer, so He sustained them during those plagues. He wanted them to know that He is patient, so He gave Pharaoh one opportunity after another to be saved. He wanted them to know that He is holy, so He judged the land. He wanted them to know that He is Savior, so He gave them the Passover. Everything that happened in this story was in order to show them how great God is. And By the way, I wonder what would happen in our own lives if we were to ask the same question. When trials come, if we would ask ourselves, God, what is it you want me to learn about yourself? What is it you're trying to teach me about who you are? Well, at this point, that is what Pharaoh should have done. But we see his pride. And pride is what happens when we have, listen, too small a view of God and too big a view of ourselves. Pride is what happens when we have too small a view of God and too big a view of ourselves. Now, the inverse of that is also true. The larger your view of who God is, the smaller of uh, your vision of yourself will be. And Pharaoh is the perfect example of this. He believed that he was a God. In chapter 5, he said, Who is Yahweh that I should worship him? 
So what happens? With each plague, his vision of God gets bigger and Pharaoh keeps getting chopped down smaller and smaller and smaller. The only question now is, will he admit it? Look at verse 3. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. In the next couple of verses, Moses described what this locust plague would would be like. But I want you to notice, once again, God sent Moses to Pharaoh to preach a sermon once again. It is the same message once again. Let my people go once again. If you don't, this is what the consequence will be. But notice there's a question that Moses inserts here, something we did not see in his previous sermons. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Back in chapter 1, the Bible says that Pharaoh humbled the Hebrews with hard labor. And so now God is humbling Pharaoh. But guess what? It didn't have to be this way. You see, Pharaoh had a choice, and his choice is our choice. We really have two options. You know what they are? Humility or humiliation. It's one or the other. Humility or humiliation. We can humble ourselves or we can be humbled. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4.10 says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. You know, it's hard for us to humble ourselves. But you know what? It's always easier for you to humble yourself than it is for you to be humbled by God. Humbling yourself always involves less pain. And the same question that God asked Pharaoh in this passage, I believe God may be asking us as individuals, as a church, as a nation, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Or maybe you could take that same question and just word it this way. How long will you insist on being in control? Or maybe God is asking, how long will you insist on doing life your way instead of my way? How long will you insist on running from my will? How long will you hurt yourself and the people around you? How long will you refuse to repent? You know, one of the things that pride does when we allow it to creep into our hearts is it blinds us to our true condition. And we see this in Pharaoh in verse 7. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? In other words, blame the messenger. Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? Pharaoh's servants could see it, but Pharaoh could not see it. The land was already destroyed. Why couldn't he see it? Because he was blinded by his own pride. And so what does Pharaoh do? The Bible says 
he called in Moses and Aaron and he asked them a question. Hypothetically, if I were to let you guys go, who all would be going? And Moses said, everyone and everything. Men, women, children, all our people, all our flocks. And here's Pharaoh's response in verse 10. Then he said to them, the Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord. For that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Understand that when Pharaoh said, the Lord had better be with you, that wasn't meant as a blessing. That was his way of saying, God help you if I ever agree to that, because boy, you're going to need it. This was absolutely a threat. But notice, Pharaoh has finally decided that he is willing to let the men go. Now we can question how sincere this offer was, but he's decided that he's going to let the men go, not the women or the children or their flocks, just the men. Now you might be wondering, okay, what is the point of that? Well, the point is Pharaoh is willing to let the men go because if only the men are allowed to go, that means Pharaoh is still calling the shots. If Pharaoh allows only the men to go, and Moses agrees, and Israel agrees, then that means God is taking orders from Pharaoh and not the other way around. That is the point. But you see, God does not just desire the worship of men. He doesn't just desire the worship of women. He wants the worship of women and men and children. And furthermore, God does not discuss terms. God dictates them. Well, Pharaoh refused those terms. And so, in verses 12 through 15, the Bible says that the plague of locusts arrived. The Bible says that God sent a wind from the east, something that's very rare in that region as a way, perhaps, of showing them God is the one that did it. The Bible says this wind blew so many locusts into the land of Egypt that the sky became darkened. You couldn't see the ground, which meant you could not walk anywhere without them squishing between your toes. The Bible says they were inside, they were outside. You couldn't sit down, you couldn't lie down, you couldn't eat, you couldn't sleep, you couldn't do anything, and that wasn't even the worst part. The worst part, the Bible says, that these locusts came in, and by the way, I learned this week, they eat the equivalent of their weight in food every single day. They came in and ate everything that the hail had not destroyed. All of the herbs, all of the fruit was gone. And the Bible even says that there had never been a plague of locusts like this before nor would there be another one afterwards. Almost like the flood. God promised it'll never happen again. God said there'll never be a plague of locusts like this one again. And once again, God is putting all of their false gods on trial. I'm starting to think the further along I preach in the book of Exodus that the reason why there were so many plagues 
is because there were so many false gods that he had to disprove. For example, Min was the god of the crops, Nepri the god of grain, Anubis was the god of the fields, and get this, there was one false god that they served, Sehenim. His sole purpose was to protect the people from pests. He only had one job. Keep the locust away. And yet, he could not do it. None of their gods could help them. And so, once again, Pharaoh calls in Moses. Once again, he made a false promise to release the Israelites. Once again, he asked Moses to pray for him. Once again, Moses went to the Lord in prayer and in an amazing act of mercy, when Moses prayed for the land, once again, God made the plague to cease. And once again, Pharaoh pulled that old bait and switch, changed his mind and said, nope, they're not going after all. It was a different plague but it was the same old song and dance. But the damage had already been done. It was total devastation. Total destruction. And folks, we need to understand that's what our pride will do. Maybe you have heard of Captain James Cook. He was the English dis, uh, uh, explorer who discovered the Hawaiian Islands on part of the British Empire. And when he first arrived, they saw this captain and all of his, his elegant clothes and this great big ship, and the natives concluded that James Cook must be a god. And you know what they did? They began to worship him, and they began to treat him like a god. And Captain James Cook decided, hey, this whole God thing ain't so bad after all. He decided that he kind of liked it. He decided he was just going to roll with it. You know what happened? All was well until he left for the second time. And about a week later, he ran into a storm and was forced to turn around and come back to Oahu in, in search of shelter. And when he got back, you know what the natives said? Now, wait one second. What kind of God has to flee the storms? You're not in control of the storms? What kind of God has to come here seeking shelter? And they realized they had been deceived and they put Him to death. You see, when we act like God, when we would pretend to be God, the end is always destruction. The result is always death. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So listen, don't let pride keep you from what God is calling you to do. Don't let pride keep you from coming to Christ don't let pride keep you from repentance or obedience. Don't let pride keep you from admitting when you're wrong. Don't let pride keep you from going into a new direction if God is leading you. 
When God sometimes gets our attention, He does so because He is challenging our pride that we might humble ourselves before the Lord. But also we notice when God is getting our attention, there's a second thing I want you to see. God is calling for our surrender. He's calling for our surrender. Now up until now, God has been putting on trial all of these so-called lesser gods of Egypt. But when we get to plagues number 9 and 10, God is putting on trial what was believed to be the two most important gods in the Egyptian pantheon. Notice what it says, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. What an amazing statement at the end of verse 21. And I don't know exactly in what sense they could feel this darkness, but I can't help but think that it must have been in a spiritual sense. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. This time, there was no warning. God told Moses to stretch out his hand, and God brought about not only darkness, the Bible calls it thick darkness. This wasn't some kind of eclipse. This wasn't some kind of a dust storm. This was something, again, supernatural, which God did. People couldn't see each other. They couldn't do anything to somehow penetrate that darkness. They couldn't leave from their dwelling places. And I think it must be hard for some of us to understand just how terrifying this plague would have been for them. I mean, we go home, if it's dark, we flip a switch. We turn on the light. If the power goes out, we have a generator. We have flashlights. We have a lantern. They had nothing but absolute darkness. And also, when you understand what an important role the sun played for them in their Egyptian worship. Horus was the god of the sunrise. Aten, god of the midday. Atum was the god of the sunset. But above them all was the sun god, Amen-Re, and Pharaoh, supposedly his son. Do you realize when darkness covered the land for three days and three nights, everybody in Egypt knew what that meant that meant even Amun-Re could not save them. That meant even Pharaoh could not save them. There's a reason why this plague is number nine. Those first eight plagues, God was teaching Pharaoh. He was proving he could not trust in any of those lesser gods. But now God is proving Pharaoh can't even trust in himself. Do you realize that when God would expel false gods from a man or woman's heart, the last God to be evicted is always, always the God of self. Notice Pharaoh's response in verse 24. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. Okay, fine, he says. 
You want all the men to go, they can all go. You want all the women to go, they can all go. You want to bring your children, fine. Bring your children. Just leave your flocks. Do you realize that at this point, Pharaoh is saying, I'll give God 99% of what he's asking for. I'll give him everything else. Just give me this one thing. I'll give him everything else. Just let me keep my throne. Hey, make no mistake about it. This was just one small step shy of complete surrender. Just one step. That's it. What happened? The Bible says that Moses said no. He understood that he didn't have the right and we don't have the right to water down what the Word of God says. Not one verse, not one command. Because complete surrender is what God was asking for. Complete surrender is what God requires. It wasn't enough for the men to go. It wasn't enough for the women and children to go. God said, no, they're going to take everything. God demanded it all. There's a man by the name of Judson Vandeventer, uh, and maybe you're not familiar with his name, but I bet you are familiar with some of his work. He grew up poor on a farm in Michigan in the 19th century, but he worked hard, and he was smart, and he was able to put himself through college, and then eventually he graduated. He became an art professor, got married his wife was expecting their very first child. And here was a man who supposedly had pulled himself up by the bootstraps, or so they said. But Judson Vandeventer had the voice of an angel. And he knew that what everybody else was saying about him was true. They were all saying, brother, you got a gift for leading people to God's throne in music, in worship. God's calling you to the ministry. But here was this man. He just got his life in order. He just climbed out of poverty. How's he going to provide for his family? And you know what? He ran from God's will for his life for five years. For five years, he knew what God wanted him to do, but he wouldn't quite go all the way. And for five years, he was miserable. Finally, after five years, Judson Vandeventer just got tired of running from God. And he made a commitment. And when he made that commitment to God, he actually put it to song. We sang that song just a few minutes ago. All to Jesus. I surrender all to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. I surrender what? All. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. We sing these words every now and then. Do we realize that these were the words of a man who learned through personal experience? 
that nothing less than complete surrender will do. You see, God is calling for complete surrender not so that He can exploit us, not so that He can mistreat us. God calls for complete surrender so that He can take what we give Him and give us back that which is infinitely better. He takes our sin and gives us forgiveness. He takes our agendas and puts His desires in our hearts. He takes our meager plans and gives us eternity. Listen, God is calling for absolute surrender, complete surrender, so that He can give us abundant life now and eternal life in the hereafter. And it is only in surrender that we will find it. Hey folks, this was Pharaoh's last chance. What happened? Verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let him go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself, and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. So Moses said, You've spoken well. I will never see your face again. Ladies and gentlemen, it is possible for a man or woman to slam shut the door of opportunity One final time. This is the person who has had one opportunity after another to repent, one opportunity after another to be saved, but after many times of rejecting the gospel, they will give to God their final answer. And listen, God will honor it. That's exactly what we see happening with Pharaoh at the end of chapter 10. How absolutely tragic. And the Bible says that this darkness descended upon Egypt But the Israelites had light. You see, this darkness that God sent, it was not only a literal darkness, but it was also a picture of a greater darkness. The spiritual darkness in which they live. The Bible says from cover to cover over and over again that the state of the man or woman separated from God by their sin is in fact darkness. Colossians 1 says that we were rescued from the kingdom of darkness. And when a person's in the dark, they can't see what's going on around them. They can't see who they are. They can't see where they are going. It's just dark. And yet the sad reality is most people in this world today are stuck in the ninth plague they live in spiritual darkness and you need to understand the bible also says numerous times that hell is a place of complete darkness and for this reason jesus came from heaven to earth john 1 says he came to shine light in the darkness but the darkness did not comprehend it He said, I am the light of the world. And by his teachings, by his miracles, by his deeds, he proved it. He lived it over and over again. And then he went to the cross and he laid down his life, paying the price for your sin and for my sin. And what happened as Jesus was hanging on the cross? Do you remember? Three hours of darkness over the whole earth. A sign that the dark curse of sin had been placed upon Jesus Christ. He hung on the cross. He died. And then they took his body and placed it in a dark tomb. And until the third day, he remained in complete darkness. But then finally, on the third day, all the darkness in the world could not keep him in the grave. 
and He rose again in glorious light. And this morning, if you're willing, like Judson Vandeventer, to come to that point and say, I surrender all. You know what God will do? God will turn on the light. The light of forgiveness. The light of salvation. Life, the light of, of hope and peace and meaning and purpose. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2, 9, God called you out of darkness and into glorious light. That's God's invitation for this world today. Would you join me as we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, the light of the world, into this world. And we thank you that he was willing to take the curse of sin upon himself when he died upon the cross for us. And we thank you, God, that on the third day he rose again. And therefore, we don't have to live in darkness anymore. We realize that darkness is how most people around us are living their lives without meaning, without purpose, without hope, without vision. And Father, you have given us the light of Jesus Christ and Jesus said to us that we are now the light of the world. So Lord, it is our desire that the light of Christ would shine in us. Father, would you show us if there's anything in our lives that would hinder that light from going forth? And Father, I pray for that man or woman right now who's in this room or listening to this message who needs to come out of the darkness and into the light, who needs to come to Christ, the light of the world, and place their faith in Him as Savior and Lord. Oh, how I pray that You'd give them that opportunity and that this morning they'd place their faith in Him. Father, I pray You'd help all of us in these moments to know exactly how You'd have us to respond to Your Word. And we'll give you the honor, we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.